Revelation chapter 1. All right. Uh, continuing our series that we just started last week, uh, 7. It's a study of the book of Revelation. The reason it's entitled 7 is because John, the writer, the apostle of Jesus Christ, was writing to the seven churches there in Asia. And we're actually going to hit on those seven churches next week and probably the week to come as we get to chapter 2 and 3. And as I said before, you know, Revelation can be a very um, almost fearful study when you think about it sometimes. But as I mentioned last week, Revelation is not meant to bring fear and terror to those that are Christians. It is meant to bring unshakable hope. Hope that Jesus Christ reigns victoriously. That Jesus Christ is in charge. So it's very easy to, 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 to study this book, to think about some of the things as we get to it in the Great Tribulation and just be fearful and just be afraid of, of what is to come. But take hope for the Christian we won't be here. We don't have to worry about that. And John didn't give it to us to overanalyze it. And it's very easy to overanalyze the book of Revelation. And it's my desire as we go through this study, I don't know how long we're going to be. I've tried to map it out, but it's my desire to not overanalyze, but to give us what I think John is intending to give to the seven churches and really the application that we can make uh, for ourselves. Uh, this is actually my third study in this book uh, the first one I did was seven years ago, almost to the day. Uh, we were about ready to leave Indiana to move to Colorado. Uh, and the, the youth there, I was the youth pastor at the time, they were asking me that they wanted me to do one final series out of the book of Revelation. You know, what a way to go out, right? Uh, so I told them I would, but you've got to really pay attention. You've got to be with me. And I think I, I, I did the whole book of Revelation in seven weeks, uh, which is insane. But the mic's looking at me like, you're crazy. I was. And it got to the place where after I think the first lesson, I realized there's no way I'm going to get through this in like six or seven weeks. So I started doing two lessons a night. Uh, it was pretty insane, pretty intense. I was doing like a 40-minute lesson. We took about a 15-minute break, got some snacks, and we did another 40-minute lesson. So talk about a lot of study. It was a lot of study, a lot of preparation. Uh, I was definitely glad to be done with it and uh, ready to move on. So we're not going to go that quickly but we are going to move fairly quickly through the book of Revelation because I want to give us what I believe John is intending to give uh, to the readers that are uh, these seven churches. So um, remember, John is exiled on the island of Pat or the Isle of Patmos. I just want to read a couple things about his exile before we really jump into it tonight. And if you have notes, I think there might be a few out there if you need some tonight. But according to the Roman historian Tacitus. Exile to such islands was a common form of punishment in the first century. At about the same time that John was banished to Patmos, Emperor Domitian exiled his own niece, Flavia Domitilla, to another island. <laughs> Unlike Flavia, Flavia, whose banishment was purely politically motivated, John was probably sent to Patmos as a criminal. As a Christian, he was a member of an illegal religious sect. If so, the conditions under which he lived would have been very harsh. Exhausting labor under the watchful eye and ready whip of a Roman overseer. Insufficient food and clothing and having to sleep on the bare ground would have taken their toll on a nearly 90-year-old man. I mean, just imagine that. I think Brother Don is 90, right? It would be like Brother Don being exiled and having to do hard manual labor, sleeping on the floor. That's kind of the picture that we need to understand here. Now, John, he's not a young man during this time. He is facing intense persecution. And what a, what a great thing that happened that 
even during this bleak, barren condition uh, on this island kind of by himself, that God decides to give him this amazing vision, these, these series of vision about the end times. I didn't say Siri. Why are you saying anything? Sorry. Uh, these series of visions. So, uh, stop. <laughs> these groups of visions. That's better. That's better. Mm, stinking thing. That's why you have an Android. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, three times throughout the book, John received great visions of the exalted Christ. And you don't have this in your notes, but I just want to quickly give this to you. Brother Mike kind of alluded to earlier that I have about an hour and a half worth of notes. Well, that's pretty much true. Uh, I'll try not to be that long tonight. Um, but there are three visions as you break down the book of Revelation. Man, you guys are in the spit row tonight. That's, that's great. That's awesome. I know you guys are like nervous and just... Uh, I don't think so. Uh, not that I know. Anyway... Three visions. First of all, we have the exalted Christ who walks among his churches. That's Revelation chapter 1, where we're going to be in tonight. Uh, The second vision that he has, again, this is not in your notes, this is just for extra. We have the vision of the warrior lamb on the throne in heaven. If you want some of this later, I can give it to you. That's in Revelation chapter 5. And then we have the vision of the king of kings who is one day coming again and coming back. And the first time I did this study, and actually the first two times, I actually skipped over this passage that we're going to do tonight. And the reason I skipped over it, because I had so much to cover, I did, I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't think it was important, but I was trying to get to some of the more heavy stuff. But as I started reading and studying this week, I realized that, man, this first chapter is so powerfully informative. It's so foundational for the rest of the book. And, you know, if you know me and my preaching, you know, I, I, I rarely get excited in my preaching. So I'm really going to try to not get excited tonight as I preach, because what we're going to see is a vision that John has of the resurrected, exalted Christ. Remember, the last time that John saw Jesus was some 60 years prior. <laughs> He's reading? Okay. The last time that John saw Jesus was 60 years prior when Jesus had been slaughtered and Jesus had been put on that cross. And then he gave that great commission to his church and uh, he ascended. So that's the last time he saw him as really kind of that gentle carpenter. But now this time he sees him as that resurrected, exalted, glorified Christ. And it's an amazing picture, as we'll see here in just a minute. But let's go ahead and jump into the notes tonight. Uh, The first thing we see is this, the plan of Christ. The plan of Christ. I'll kind of read these verses as we get to them. Starting in verse number 9 of chapter 1, the Bible says, I, John, who also am your brother. So again, he's writing. Who is he writing to? Let's just go ahead and ask this question. Who is John writing to? The church, yes, the churches, the seven churches there in Asia. So I, John, who also am your brother, he's a brother in Christ, and companion in tribulation. Now, you know, it's funny, a lot of times people think that preachers have it easy. <laughs> well, preachers don't have it easy, and John is uh, really, he's, he's letting them know that uh, what you're suffering and they were suffering at the hands of the Roman government, and re- many of them were being persecuted and thrown into prison. Many of them were fed to the lions there at the Roman Colosseum. Uh, John was going through just as much, if not more, persecution as them. So he's letting them know that, hey, I'm your companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the aisle 
which is called Patmos, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, talking about he was worshiping the Lord on that Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and heard behind me, just imagine this, a great voice as of a trumpet. So we have the plan of Christ first and foremost, and the plan that we have of Jesus Christ is different than the plan that the world has. And here's what I mean. The plan that the world has is to find satisfaction, to seek happiness, fulfillment. The plan that the world has is a very selfish plan, very self-centered plan. But the plan that our Savior has is much different. You see, the plan that Jesus has is a plan that centers around two things, suffering and service. Suffering and service. And that's the first thing we see here in this plan of Christ. First of all, we suffer for His kingdom. John is an apostle, but notice in verse number 9 at the start, that's not how he describes himself, is it? He doesn't start out and say, hey, me, John, I'm, I'm this great apostle of Jesus Christ. What's he say? Hey, I'm one of your brothers. I'm a companion. I'm a partner in your suffering. What you're going through, I'm going through as well. John knows there are four universal truths that comes with suffering for Jesus. There is a partnership with suffering. There's pain that comes with suffering. Nobody likes to suffer. No one in here would say, Pastor, I just want to suffer all the days of my life. I mean, you literally have to be out of your mind if you thought like that. But we have to understand that suffering is indeed part of God's plan. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But there's a partnership that he's talking about. There's pain. There's actual pain that comes with it. But suffering also is a privilege and comes with a purpose. You see, the privilege of suffering is that the fact that think about all that Jesus has done for us. Think about all that he suffered when he was on this earth. Think of the agonizing and cruel death that he endured on the cross. The torture that he went through. Those cat of nine tails that literally, I'm not trying to be too graphic, but just ripped his flesh off. The pain, the torture of dying and having to keep trying to pull himself up to get a breath. It was excruciating. You think, well, why would I want to suffer like that? But the suffering that we have as Christian pales in comparison to what our Savior suffered for us. But it's a privilege because we are counted worthy as a Christian to suffer for Christ. Look, John's exile wasn't on accident. There was a purpose to it all. You think about the pain and struggles that you have. None of your pain and struggles catch Jesus off guard. They don't surprise him. You see, it is in Christ, of Christ, and for Christ. Jesus provided John the strength he needed. And the truth is that Jesus provides us the same strength we need during suffering. And it's, it's, it's almost funny. As I was finishing my notes and preparing this message, a lot of times I have music going on in my office and different, uh, just different playlists that were going. And at the moment that I'm literally jotting this down that, you know, as, as uh, you know, John is, is going through this and Jesus is providing him the strength and, and the same strength is provided to us, a song came on and it was, sometimes he calms the storm, but other times he calms his child. And there were several times as I was studying that a song came on and it was just like, wow, that's exactly kind of what I'm dealing with. You know, sometimes Jesus might actually calm the storm, the suffering that we're going through, and sometimes he allows us to go through it and says, you know what, I'm with you. It's okay. You see, we see Jesus as that suffering Savior. But let's go on quickly in verse number 10 and 11. Again, John, he says, I was in the Spirit, or he was worshiping 
on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, so whatever you see in these visions, I want you to write it down, write it in a book, and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia. And we'll get to those in chapter 2 and 3. Unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. We move on. We see, first of all, the plan of Christ, the suffering and the service. But then we see in verses 12 through 18, and this is where it gets good, we see the indescribable Christ. How I want to reference it. The indescribable Christ. Because as John is witnessing this vision of Jesus, he's witnessing not necessarily what Jesus is actually looking like, but what he portrays. His glory, his majesty. John sees this vision of a glorified Christ. And in verse number 12, here's what we notice in verses 13, 12 and 13. We get a sense of his presence. Look at verse number 12. Follow along with me. It says this. And I turn to see the voice. Again, imagine all of a sudden you're sitting there, you're worshiping Jesus, maybe in your home, in your car, and all of a sudden this loud voice just comes out of nowhere. And you're, you're going to turn and see who is the voice, who is talking. That's what John does. He, he turns to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, let me make note quickly that there's a lot of times in the book of Revelation where are there... There are symbolic things, meaning um, John is trying to describe something in symbolism. Um, you know, I've used this illustration before, and it's, it, it still rings true. Uh, the time when I was like in second grade and I went to the Grand Canyon, uh, people were trying to describe it to me. I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought it was a giant hole, little hole in the, in, in the ground. Literally, I walk up to the edge, and I see this hole that goes, you know, 100 feet down. And like, it's black and stark, can't see anything. I'm like, why would I want to go there? I'm a second grader. I don't want to go there. It, everyone that was trying to describe it to me, like I couldn't make sense of this. So in some way, just imagine that as John is seeing the things that he's about to see and witness, he's trying to describe them for us as best he can. But there's no way to describe fully all of Jesus' majesty and glory and significance. But we see his presence. Now, the seven churches are represented by seven golden candlesticks. We know this because verse 20, and we'll get to that later in the message, tells us that, that God, Jesus, tells John what he's actually talking about. Now, this signifies the expression of divine life that should radiate through the churches. But notice what we see in verse number 13. And I love this as it starts really getting good. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks... Let me just ask this question. If Maybe you've already read this down. Who is in the midst of the candlesticks? And the candlesticks represent the church. Who is in the midst of the church? Jesus. Now, again, this, this is good. Again, I'm, I'm going to try to tailor my excitement tonight. But you think about the, the trouble that is going on in our world. Put it in our, our day. Put the application today where we are. Think about the trouble that was going on in, in the churches there in Asia at that time, the persecution that they were under. And I'm sure there were times that they felt all alone. You ever feel all alone in your life? You ever feel like no one's there? Honestly, you ever feel like God just doesn't care? Because both my hands are up. There are times that I literally have felt, God, do you even care what's going on in my life? And I'm sure that as these churches are gathering and facing persecution, they're probably thinking, does God even care? 
Is he even there? Am I just crying out and no one is listening? But as, as John is receiving this revelation, he sees that Jesus is in the middle of the churches, which means he is there. He's holding them all together. He is situated among the candlesticks. Let me continue reading. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the uh, lost my place, clothed with the garment down to the foot, and girt about with faps with a golden girdle. You know what this means? It means that Jesus is with us first and foremost. He is in our midst. He knows what you're going through. Even though we may fail him, you know what? He doesn't fail us. And how do we endure? How do we endure tribulation and sorrow and persecution and trouble and stress? We endure by knowing the power of the indescribable Christ, that Jesus Christ is with us, that his presence is among us. And what John gives us in the next four or five verses are some indescribable characteristics of the exalted Christ. Let me give a quick uh, commentary on this. William Hendrickson on the book of Revelation, he says this, the entire description must be taken as a whole and interpreted as such. Let us try to see it that way. Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty and with awe and terror. That long royal robe, that golden belt buckled at the breast, the hair so glistening white like the snow with the sun shining, it hurt the eye. Those eyes flashing fire, eyes which read every heart and penetrated every hidden corner, those feet glowing in order to be trampled down to the wicked, that loud reverberating voice like the mighty breakers booming against the rocky shore of Patmos. So what we see is, again, this indescribable Christ. And the several characteristics, I'm trying to go somewhat quick tonight, but the first characteristic that I see is this. Verse 13, Jesus is a man. He's a man. It says in verse number 13, one like unto the Son of Man. Whenever the Son of Man is referenced in the Bible, it's talking about Jesus. Again, imagine John's perspective here. He had spent three years with Jesus on this earth. Walked with Him. Talked with Him. And the last glimpse that John had of his friend was that 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 torturous death that he endured. And then he got to see him ascend into heaven, but now he sees him robed in majesty. Robed in, he's not robed in earthly humiliation anymore. He's now robed in heavenly exaltation. So the first characteristic we see is that Jesus is a man. Second characteristic we see in verse number 13, one like unto the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. We see that Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. I don't have time to take you back, but in both Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, we see a vision of the Son of Man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist with eyes like flaming torches. And this is a picture of the Son of Man ushering in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now realize these images were not intended to be literal. This is not John's answer to the question, what is Jesus wearing in heaven? These are images that would have been familiar to John's readers. Images that would have triggered in their minds the words of the prophets. Another thing we see about Jesus, another characteristic quickly is this. Jesus is the final high priest. In the Bible, he is often described as the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment. What this verse is saying, how you can better interpret it is this. He is dressed in a robe, reaching all the way down to his feet, has a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Now, stay with me here. Six out of the seven times when a long robe like this is mentioned in the Old Testament, it refers to the clothing of a high priest. The clothing that that high priest would wear as he entered into the most holy place to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And now, that's what John is telling his readers, that Jesus is a picture of the ultimate high priest. He is pictured as the final priest who entered into the presence of God and the Father and has offered full and final sacrifice for the sins of the world. That golden sash high around his chest signified his dignity and his royalty. Another characteristic we see of Jesus, continuing on, verse number 14, it says, His head and his hairs were white like wool. Anyone have white hair in here? All right, we got a couple of people. All right. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. The next thing I see is this. Jesus is infinitely old and wise. Jesus is infinitely old and wise. Now, this is a deliberate picture of age. Today, a person is admired not necessarily as they get older. People are admired today if they can look younger. And what's what we're trying to do? We're always trying to look younger. You know, you think about it. People, they dye their hair so they can look younger. They do things to their body so they can look younger. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things, but... In the Bible, we see that the Bible sees things differently. In Proverbs 16, 31, the Bible says the hoary or the white head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. You see, today aging has negative connotations. And the reason it has negative connotations because we live in a sin-cursed world. Meaning that the older you get, you mature, but you don't just necessarily become stronger. You get in your 70s and 80s, you're not like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm as strong today as I ever was. Probably not, right? <laughs> That's right. I'm sure maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, he'd say, man, I'm as strong today as I ever was. Because that doesn't equate to us because aging today, we, we don't understand that it's, it's a great sign of dignity and you know, it's a great thing because all the, all the struggles that come with aging, But in the Bible, once sin is gone, aging will be associated with growing wisdom, insight, and maturity. You see, what John is trying to help us understand here is that Jesus Christ has existed forever. Now, before I go on, try to wrap your mind around that. I mean, literally, right now, try to wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus Christ has always been. Go. Anybody's head hurt? (laughs) It hurts, right? When you start thinking about it, you're like, no, there's no way. Like, I, I, I don't know how many times I've thought about this. Like, the Bible says he's always been, he always will be. But I, I can't do it because in my mind, you have to have a beginning, right? There has to be a beginning. There has to be an end. But that's the thing. In this sin-cursed world, we don't understand the way that Jesus understands things. Jesus Christ has had no beginning, which, again, it blows my mind. And he has no end. He is infinitely old, infinitely wise. The experience and wisdom of Christ has no end is what John is referring to here. He continues on in verse number 14 at the end. Look, it says, And his eyes were as flame of fire. What this is saying to us, this characteristic is this. Jesus has the knowledge 
of all things. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. Seems like most moms in here, you know, they just, you know, see everything, what their kids are doing. He sees it all. And the reality is Jesus sees through it all. He sees through the fake Christianity that people have oftentimes. With eyes like fire, he searches every area of our hearts. Jesus sees through the pretense that many people have. He also sees the purity of our hearts. He sees the stains of our hearts. He, he searches every area of our hearts and he sees everything we'd like to hide, but we can't. You see, nothing escapes his all-searching, all-knowing, pure gaze of Jesus. And that's the picture John is giving us here. Whereas his eyes were as a flame of fire. We continue on, verse number 15. And his feet likened to fine brass or bronze as if they burned in a furnace. What this is telling us, that Jesus loved the Son and he just got burnt. No, that's not what it's saying. What this is saying, this is picturing that strength and purity, bronze or brass, this metal would have been purified in a furnace so that it might glow in purity. You see, Jesus is absolutely pure. His purity has no error. His power knows no equal. This burnished bronze is a picture of both glory and strength. Jesus Christ has all glory, has all strength. Moving on, continuing on, verse number 15 and 16. And his voice as the sound of many waters. You ever, uh, you ever been around a, um, like a mighty rushing waterfall? It's, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe the sound, isn't it? Just that rushing water. So that's what John is trying to describe as he hears this voice and this vision as the sound of the, the rushing waters. And when you think about that, you think of majesty and power and authority, don't you? And that's what we see here in verse 15 and 16, that Jesus has authority. His voice is the sound of many waters. And, and in verse number 16, in his right hand, seven stars, which we'll allude to in just a minute. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now again, this is not what Jesus is actually looking like. This is imagery of his authority, of his power, of his uh, glory. His announcement is powerful. And from his mouth, get this picture, comes a sharp two-edged sword in the Bible that is referred to as God's Word. It's that double edge. On the one hand, he declares eternal salvation. On the other hand, he decrees a final judgment. In verse 16, where it says, In his right hand, seven stars. The right hand is the hand of authority and honor. What is he holding in his hand? What does verse 16 tell us that he's holding in his hand? The seven stars. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but we'll see it in just a second. But what we see here is this. Here's the key truth before I move on to the next, the next uh, characteristic. What is in his hand is his possession and has his protection. Now, let me say that again. If you want to write that down, you can write it down. What is in his hand is his possession and has his protection. Whatever Jesus holds in his hand is protected by him. <laughs> and it's his. If I have something in my hand, there's a good chance someone can take this out of my hand. <laughs> especially if someone's really hungry right now. There's a good chance that's going to leave. But whatever is in Jesus' hand is His. 
The Bible says no man can pluck you out of his hand. I'm thankful for that. Thank you, Brother Don. And again, what we see is that Jesus has authority. The next thing we see in verse number 16, we continue on. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Jesus is praiseworthy. Jesus is praiseworthy. This speaks of his brilliance, his majesty, and as I described, his pure awesomeness. Before Jesus comes to rule the world, he wants to first rule the church. He is more than just a gentle shepherd. He is the might and strength at the center of the church. Now we're going to go on, but man, those are just amazing characteristics of Jesus Christ. You see, it's time that the church see Jesus in all of his splendor. I think so often uh, we don't really have a great picture of who Jesus is. I think sometimes we just view him as that, you know, long hair, almost looking hippie that we see in some of these pictures. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is all powerful. He controls everything. In his mouth, that, that is both blessings and cursing, the, the salvation and also the judgment that is coming. We must see Jesus as he truly is, as the exalted Savior, the risen Savior. Now, stay with me here. Look at verse number 17. After John has already witnessed just a couple of these things, and as he's seeing this, now the Bible has already told us in the Old Testament that no man can look upon the face of God because it's just too magnificent, and it would just it would kill you. Look at verse number 17. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. So basically, I fell like a dead man. This almost killed John. Imagine that. I can't even begin to imagine what John experienced. The glory of Christ would overwhelm us as it did with John. John nearly died. But notice what happened next. And he, who is the he here? Jesus. He laid his right hand upon me saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, again, if this doesn't encourage you and excite you, then I don't know what does. But John is just so overwhelmed by what he has just experienced and what he has just witnessed and what he has just seen in this exalted, glorified, majestic Savior. And Jesus puts his hand and says, Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am, I am he, I am, uh, verse 17, uh, I am the first and the last. You see, Jesus gives a final encouragement for John, revealing more of his ultimate power that is going to both overwhelm and encourage us. But here's what he says, that Jesus has power over creation. When he says, I am the first and the last, Jesus is saying to John from the Greek, I am the protos and the extatos, which means first and last. Jesus has the first word in creation when he spoke the world into existence and he will have the final word in creation. I'm glad somebody's getting something tonight. Thank you. So Jesus has power over creation, but it continues on. Verse number 18. Again, man, I want you to understand this and I want you to picture this. You see, we have to view the Bible the way that it was intended to be viewed. Imagine yourself in John's shoes. Imagine hearing this voice, this mighty voice from heaven. It's the voice of God. It's the voice of Jesus. And he sees this picture of Jesus. 
overwhelms him so much that he's basically laying down like a dead man because he's about to die. He, he can't take it. It's so overwhelming. And Jesus says, no, 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 calm down. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I am he. I'm the first and the last. And then he continues on. I am he that liveth and was dead. Hey, you, you, you know that Jesus that you saw on that cross that was put in the tomb? I'm the same Jesus. But this time, you don't see me as that man. You see me as someone completely different. And what we see here, this characteristic of Jesus is this, that Jesus Christ lives forever. Aren't you thankful for that, church? He is God. He is absolute Lord, both of creation and of history. What he starts, he finishes. He is before all. And after all, all things are under his sovereign control. We continue on. Verse number 18. I am he that liveth and he that was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell or Hades, as it's referred to often in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The keys of hell and death. Now the characteristic we see here is that Jesus controls death. Keys are symbolic of authority in the Jewish thought. Jesus says, I have authority over death. Basically, I speak and death listens. I speak and death obeys. Now, Satan does not determine whether you die or not. You know who determines whether you die or not? Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has authority over death, he has the ability to turn it into gain for both him and for ourselves if we trust in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. O uh, uh, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. Why? Because he conquered death. He rose victoriously from the grave. We see that Jesus controls death. And these closing verses, verses 19 and 20, really give us the key to unlocking the entire book of Revelation. You see, verse number 19 presents an outline for the book. Look what John is commanded to do. Verse number 19 again, Jesus tells him something. He says, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So really, the, the whole outline of the book is what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And the chapter closes with Jesus explaining the mystery of the symbolism that he's already alluded to. Verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand. Remember the hand of authority that was holding? And the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now many commentaries believe these are the messengers or these are the pastors over those seven churches. So what, what it's saying here is that Jesus holds those in his hand. He is watching over them. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So basically Jesus is saying, I got you. <laughs> if you're in my church, I got you. There is nothing that's going to happen to you beyond my control. You see, if you're a Christian reading this and studying this book, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to be afraid. I know some of the things that we're going to hit on can be terrifying, but if you're a Christian, as we'll allude to and as we'll get to, we won't be here, so it doesn't matter. It's not for us to overanalyze and what is John actually referring here? Who cares? 
What matters the most, listen, I mean, I could literally stop at chapter one and we could be done. But chapter one is what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's about the exalted Christ. See him as he truly is. So Christians, don't fear this book. Don't fear what may happen. Now, if you're lost, you should fear because it's terrifying. I wouldn't want to go through that. I wouldn't want anyone to go through that. And as a Christian, it should encourage us. You know what? I have a job to do. I should tell other people about Jesus so they don't have to endure that tribulation. So they don't have to endure that madness. You know, that's what I want from this series. I want us to have such a desire for the lost that we are willing to to tell them whatever it takes to get them out of that. (laughs) I mean, you think about it. We, We all have people that we just despise. But even the ones that you despise, you wouldn't wish that upon them. And if you do, there's something wrong up here mentally. <laughs> but I'm going to close with this, the key truth of this. Don't fear time because Jesus is the first and the last. Don't fear life because Jesus is alive forevermore. Don't fear dying because he holds the keys to the grave and death. And if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven which is far better than this earth. You get a quarantine with Jesus for all eternity. How great is that? It's pretty awesome. And I close with this. We serve an exalted Christ. And what I see in this first chapter, and what I see from John, is this. It encourages us to fall down in worship. Fall down in worship. And rise up and witness. Witness the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of the living God. Worship him. Worship who he is. And what he has done for you. Next week as we continue. We're going to try to go through these seven churches. I don't know if we're going to go through all seven in one session. We might break it up into two sessions. But hang on because it's about to start getting even deeper. But again... Understand and remember everything we've studied so far in chapter 1. And if you start getting afraid or terrified, go back to what we've already talked about. It's all about Jesus. He holds it all. He holds the keys of everything. He is in control. And John wasn't writing this to the readers to scare them. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Cursed is he that readeth. Is that what it says? No, it says, Blessed is he that readeth. And then hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Jesus is coming back. We don't have time to fool around. We don't have time to just live however we want to live. Jesus is coming. He is coming back. His second coming. He's going to come to rule and reign. So get serious about God. Get serious about his church. And as I close, fall down in worship so you can rise up in witness.